You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion Channel. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. My guest today is friend of the show, Michael Hutchins, and we're getting ready to talk uh, a little bit more about the films of Carlos Saura. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, before we uh, dig into uh, any of this and do our housekeeping and everything, uh, I did just want to check in. How are, how are things going for you, Michael? Everything is doing going very good. Thank you for asking, Josh. Yeah. Well, that's great. How has the channel grown over the last couple months? Oh, it's it's been pretty steady. We've 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 not had a big increase. I think even over the last year, if I've actually started crunching the numbers, we'd see that it it has reached a kind of plateau. Yeah. Where we're we are getting some months where we get a lot of films, but then the next month there uh, a lot of films are leaving. So it's, yeah. it's almost balancing itself out to where you were keeping between 2,700, 28 films at any one, any one month. I, yeah. I I knew you'd have that fact just kind of hovering okay. right there at the front of your, your head. So thank you. Oh, thank yeah. you. And we're, we're coming up any day now on the, the fourth anniversary of the, of the channel. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's yeah. true. It's coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, before we really dig into the show, I do want to thank all of our Patreon supporters for supporting the show. It really does mean a lot, uh, and it helps keep the show going. So thank you so much uh, for for all that you do to keep uh, to keep the show running. If you want to support the show, uh, you can go to uh, Patreon.com/slash Josh Hornbeck, and uh, when you support the show, you get early access to shows. You also get unedited uh, episodes. Uh, we've started wrapping our uh, uh, monthly discussions of what's new on the channel into the patreon feed just uh, to uh, allow for uh, my health to uh, allow me to just edit one episode a month um, so that goes to uh, patreon supporters and i also just want to thank our new patreon supporter christopher thomas for uh, his support of the show so thanks christopher and welcome to the patreon community and uh welcome all right well, two months ago, we, Michael, you and I uh, started talking about Carlos Saura and his films. Pretty recently, uh, a whole bundle of his work was added to the permanent streaming library. And uh, we now have uh, a, just a ton of his films to talk about. Uh, and uh, so we talked about the earliest three that are available on the Criterion channel. Uh, as part of the permanent streaming-only library. So we started talking about The Hunt, 
peppermint frappe and stress is three. Uh, when we recorded that conversation, Saura was still alive. He was still making films. And since we recorded, he did die. Uh, he was working right up until his death. Mm-hmm. And uh, he worked in, and lived a, a full life. It was pretty incredible, right? It was, yes. And uh, the day before his uh, the day after his death, he was scheduled to get the Goya Award, which yeah. is one of the you know the highest awards uh, in the arts that you can receive in Spain. Yeah, you know he continued you know af- as he was making films, he was continuing to produce work that was shown uh, around the world at international film festivals, and in the seventies, um, you know he was becoming one of the most well known filmmakers working in Spain at that point. And you know, last the last conversation we had, I think it was it was really fitting that you know all three of the films we talked about really dug into kind of explorations of machismo and masculinity. And watching these three films back to back, I'm struck by how how well suited all three of these films are to be discussing together. Uh, were you struck by that as well? I was, and I. It was only afterward that I looked to see the writing credits. Of course, uh, Sara wrote, co-wrote almost all his films. Mm-hmm. In this case, his co-writer on them was uh, Raphael Azcona, I believe is how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a connection there, the actual uh, co-writer. Oh, in the case of the first film we're going to talk about, Geraldine Chaplin was a co-writer. Yeah. So yeah. that was that was very unusual. Yeah. You know, all all three of the films take place in kind of isolated houses yes uh the the characters isolate themselves from the rest of the world and you know it, it strikes me that there's this progression across all three of these as well where yeah. the central couple in honeycomb slowly remove themselves from the rest of the world mm-hmm. uh the garden of delights you have this family that is in this isolated place that might make some some journeys out into the wider world but mainly stay on the family estate and then in Anna and the Wolves it's the outsider who comes into this isolated place and uh, it's incredibly potent I think and and very disturbing uh, this the isolation that we get over the course of these three films mm-hmm. would you would you think it's somehow Sara's way of like looking at Spain, he's able to create a microcosm of Spain in itself being isolated from the rest of the world during the Franco regime. Yeah. And so he was able to kind of boil everything down to this one little a setting and be able to more more reveal his uh, his themes through that way. Yeah, it's incredibly effective. Um, something mm-hmm. I, I was talking about with my wife as well is there's a, a quality about these films too. I think the longer that he made work under fascism, there's a there's kind of this eeriness and this um, this uncomfortable, disturbing quality in all of the films that gets under your skin. Yeah, that's something you'll see throughout the six films we we're, we've discussed so far. Yeah, in that in that uh, there is this growing sense as you watch a film that that there's there's an un, there's an undercurrent of not necessarily terror. But there's there's this fear that 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 kind of stays low and t- and just kind of burst out, you know, yeah, at the it, end. Yeah, it's almost a horror. You know, I, yeah, I think yeah. 
I think where where the first three films were were very kind of thrillery and had more suspense elements to them, these there's a, a grotesquerie to them, and uh, there's something about the 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 surrealism and the the symbolism that begins to elevate it or uh, take it into more horrific categories, which oh, I think yes. is, is fascinating. And exactly. Yeah. I, and I think it's. I think these films, these three films especially, share more in common with uh, Salo and uh, some of the the other films that are really dealing with the consequences of fascism and the consequences of uh, the the ways that these systems dehumanize us. So yeah, I'm I I really enjoyed all of these yeah. films. They're difficult films, but they're really compelling works, right? Yes, and uh, it, speaking of any connections as well with other filmmakers. He was, uh, Sara was a very good friend with Louis Bunuel. Yeah. And you didn't see it as much in those first three seven films we were, that we discussed uh, last month. But in this one, it becomes more obvious. Yes. Uh, the, the, the surrealism just kind of kind of takes over. In some places, it's, it's, it's almost comic to a certain point, and then it becomes mm-hmm. more surreal. And that's when the, the Bunuel elements or the, uh, maybe his uh, influence may have rubbed off on Sara there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, let's uh, go ahead and start talking about Honeycomb and uh, the the first of these these three films. As you were saying, this was Geraldine Chaplin was a co-writer on this as well. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go ahead and uh, start talking about the the plot and the story? Yeah, let's do with? that. Yeah. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the title, which is I think. Uh, just makes no sense in the, in the uh, the English word that they chose to actually title this film, <laughs> uh, because a uh, honeycomb kind of gives you the idea that this is maybe a small isolated area, but there's a lot of uh, energy going on. There's a lot of work, you know, like you know, busy as a beehive, and that's mm. the connotation I take away from the word honeycomb. It, it's 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 a place of progress. But the actual Spanish name is La Madriguera, which means mm. a, a burrow or a den or even like a hiding place, which makes a lot more sense when you see this yeah. home that this couple lives in. They live in this, uh, as you as you spoke earlier, they live in this isolated area of Spain uh, in this brutalist style, I guess, villa, but very modern, you know, concrete block house, isolated from all of their neighbors. And uh, they, well, they do have some, some friends because we learned that the guy is an, an industrialist. I believe he's some kind of supervisor at a uh, auto manufacturing plant, but and we see little glimpses of that, and I'm not sure if it, what you know what that actually achieves within the narrative, knowing mm-hmm. what he does. But I, I guess it does bring up it, it. It makes us aware that outside this world, that, that he does have another life, and that and that he does have some power within that world, if not in his own home. You know, we learn very soon. Well, the first scene of the movie, we see a truck drive, a truck pulling up, a moving truck, and all of this antique Baroque furniture is being delivered to this very brutalist style house. Yeah. And you, you can see the contrast there that what's what's happening is, and we're not sure. Maybe it's hinted at that maybe there was a death in the family, and that this is this antique furniture belonged to her, and somehow she uh, as it has inherited it and brings it to this house, which doesn't match the design at all. And so she kind of stashes away into the uh, into the basement, 
And from there, uh, almost immediately, it, almost as if the furniture is a catalyst to something that mm -hmm. kind of burst open in her brain, she starts having uh, these dreams about her childhood and sleepwalking. But at a certain point, uh, after her husband confronts her about the sleepwalking, we have to question whether or not what she's she, what she's started off may have been sleepwalking is becoming a, a conscious, I won't say it's a trick because the husband is playing along with it, but they play these series of games with each other. Uh, these games of, of, of power, mostly her, her husband being in charge, but uh, by the end of the movie, we see the roles have been reversed to a certain, to a certain extent. Yeah, but it, that's basically it's, it's it's a film about about a couple and their their fantasies and the games they play with each other within this isolated house. And I mean, just I, I recall one of the lines from it when the husband turns to his wife and says, "You're still a girl, you're still just a little girl." And this and this fact is also almost a common thing among other films that we've seen by Sara, mm -hmm. uh, and that that we have an older husband and a and a younger you know almost naive wife, and then you uh, and that he's almost there like like more of like a father figure than an actual husband. Yeah, something that really struck me really early on in the film is that first dream mm -hmm. and the, um, or the only dream that we really get. Yes. It is this, this sense that there is a buried trauma mm -hmm. in her past that is now has now come to the surface with the arrival of the childhood furniture. Mm -hmm. That something, something happened in her life that she suppressed that she buried that she pushed aside that she chose to forget well, i can see that yes definitely and yeah. and the arrival of the furniture has because you know we we first see them they seem like such a lovely loving couple we see mm -hmm. them affectionate with each other and then it it unlocks like you said this this thing inside of her and, and she she begins to regress she begins to to move into the space of needing to explore a childhood that maybe it was stolen from her maybe it was maybe there are these things that she was unable to fully process because of this this repressed this repressed memory this repressed yeah. uh, past so I, I found that really interesting really fascinating in, in some of the other sour films that we've seen we've seen this idea of kind of attempting to forget to lock away the past to to hide it away and uh what happens when it kind of comes back bubbling to the surface and uh, oh that that's gonna be true in the next two films we, we discussed exactly as well, you know? exactly yeah. and and so i think it's to me this was such a a rich experience and seeing how that played out in their dynamic because then she is trying to to navigate it this in this way and, and you know he's humoring her at first yeah, yeah. and then he gets sucked into it mm -hmm. and, and and it becomes cathartic at one moment when she you know pretends to be pregnant and they they uh, have the baby at one point yeah. Uh, and it's a it's a a fake baby or a, a doll, mm -hmm. and it becomes this incredibly cathartic moment for the two of them. They have these these moments that are so powerful that draw them closer together, but then they have these moments that push them further and further apart mm -hmm. as well. And these fantasies aren't necessarily sexual. When you, when yeah. you it's all about power. The yeah. way I look at it, it's yeah. about control. 
and uh, maybe like there's even like a spanking scene, and but I don't see that as as any anything sexual in this in this yeah. case, you know. Yeah, and when he does, when she does ask him what her what his sexual fantasy is, and she tries to play that out for him, it does flip something for her at one point, and <laughs> she she gets so angry and so she pushes him off. She there's something in that that she finds distasteful that yeah. she finds triggering in her own life yeah. that 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 her husband is attempting to dominate and control her mm-hmm. uh, and again you know nothing is spelled out in in the way that i think so many films that if they were to take this tack would be you know she was abused as a child and now all of the stuff has come up and now she's living out her childhood again. You know, I, I feel like, like a lesser film would kind of walk us through all of these steps. Oh, it's no, it's not overt at all. It's, you know, everything is subtext. You, 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 you have to kind of, kind of read it in their faces and uh, whatever, whatever feeling she's got, you know, it's it's never spoken. Yeah. It's, it's so rich in the performance, in the, the the ways they will subtly shift throughout the course of this these games that they play with each other it's it's a really i found it so utterly compelling yeah i think between the time i first saw this last september when it came on the channel and, and this later viewing i bumped it up a half a star because it, it yeah. just i was able to 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 be able to see more and get more of the uh actual what what sora was was trying to achieve here yeah, and I think that the the use of the um, this almost gothic furniture <laughs> being placed inside a brutalist modern sleek home, the incongruity there is is striking. But it also, again, we're we're dredging up the past constantly. We're we're bringing the past into the present, uh, a past that we've tried to blot out. We've tried to stamp out we've tried to hide and we're trying to resurface it and uh, dig into it and try to understand it you know and so many of the games and so many of the scenarios and so many of the role-playing scenarios that the two of them play are at the beginning a part of her her history and part of her her past Mm-hmm. Um, well, when you think of the house as a physical space, yeah. and and then uh, the furniture starts in the basement, like it's it's very low, and that gradually it starts moving into different parts of the house, yeah. and so it till it almost it it fills the house. It becomes, it takes the place of what was there before. Yeah, you know something also strikes me as we're talking, that the progression of the types of role playing that they're doing. You know, it, it starts with childhood, and it while it goes back into childhood sometimes, too, it really takes this progression of kind of childhood to adulthood to through their relationship and even up into the end of their relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm struck that there is a, there's some, some deeper symbolic significance in that, too, mm-hmm. that we're, we're looking at the the early nascent stages of these of of spain and all of the 
the ways, you know, we even have the ways that religion is used to control um, as parts of the games that they play. We have the class differences as they play roles of servants at times. Oh, yeah. That was a great scene. Whenever they're they're speaking, they take on the roles of the servants speaking about their their work, I mean, the the masters of the house, you know. And, And then they take on other roles where they're each speaking for the other, you know, yeah. like in a reversal. Yeah. yeah. It, to me, I mean, there is just, there's a lot of things happening on a lot of different levels within the different games that they're playing. Yeah. And uh, I think it's, it's an incredibly successful attempt to, to dredge up the past and yeah. to, mm-hmm. to explore the past without, running afoul of the sensors <laughs> right and and but then you see there is an increase of, of physicality of each of the the games you're playing and to reach yeah. a point where it becomes um, yeah. a, a physical violence yeah. and um at that point it kind of backs off it's like they've reached the peak of this yeah. games you're playing and it gets to its very tender sweet moment where they're recalling their engagement yeah. I mean, the, the music, the, it's a soaring music, and yeah. it's just almost like, here's this, hey, we've gone through this now, so now let's go back to being a loving couple, and then boom. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I I think this was such a such a sharp change for me coming off of Stresses 3. It just, it felt like I really enjoyed the first three that I saw. I think they were all, they were all really compelling and really, really enjoyable. But this, to me, felt like such an evolution and such a leap from where Saura had been with the first three films that I've, of his that I had seen. That, to me, it just was, it was really rich and really, it really invited me in. And I think I responded to this set of films uh, more strongly than the earlier set. Yeah, and this is made just a year after Stresses 3. So it's, there is a great leap in the storytelling and direction. Yeah, there's a complexity here. There's a symbolic complexity. There's a layering of motivations and, again, an attempt to really dig into what's going on in Spain at the time that I find I find so, so compelling. I think this film didn't get any kind of backlash because I think uh, because it was, most yeah. viewers didn't see it as a way of, of showing the relationship between uh, the church and the state and the family in Spain, that it didn't get much backlash, not as much as the next film we're going to talk about. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's uh, that's a perfect transition into discussing The Garden of Delights, which uh, it was suppressed. I think it was, if I remember right, it was suppressed for six to seven years. And then it, the, eventually it was it was released. So it, it hit some buttons with the the censors in Spain. <laughs> yeah, but it did get played around the world because yes. by 1980 something, early 80s, it was already in the Janus collection. Yeah. And so and then uh, even, they even released it on video cassette in the 90s, not, not with under the Criterion Collection banner. It was just a Janus film under Home Vision Media that they had uh, a partnership. But other than that, yeah, it's 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 been a genius film for some time now. It only recently came to the channel, which makes me think there's a lot of films still in the Janus library that we're just not getting because I, I don't know. I don't know what how they choose to, to release these films, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes sometimes within the last year we are getting a lot. I think yeah. like we discussed this last time, we got like forty films in twenty twenty two that's part of this Janus library. Yeah. 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 
Well, uh, the Garden of Delights is the story of uh, Antonio, who uh, is a, a businessman who was injured in a car accident. He is paralyzed. He's has some memory loss. And he's not fully paralyzed. He's got some temporary paralysis. And his family is desperate to figure out where he has placed the money that he has embezzled from the family business because uh, they're all in need of those funds right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they are attempting to shock him into remembering. They're trying to jog his memory through various techniques, uh, mainly by... Uh, recreating uh, scenes from his life and having him watch or having him participate. And again, like the last film, we're all trapped inside this palatial estate and uh, the family will put on outfits and costumes. They'll bring in actors and uh, they recreate sequences like the, the time that he was forced to stay inside of a room with a pig yeah. uh, and the the his first communion when it was raided his memories of the yeah the, the Spanish Civil, Civil War, War yeah. yeah so there are all of these memories that are being staged for him again just like the the fantasy games that the couple uh, in reenacts in uh, honeycomb yeah. and it's all to try to jog his memory so that he can tell the family what Swiss bank accounts uh, he stashed his, his money in, and they're trying to get him to be able to sign his name again so that he can sign the money over to them. And it's it's very funny at times. It's really disturbing. Uh, again, I think there are these 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 moments of, of uh, trauma uh, that we see, whether it's the children beating each other senseless with what look like little cannonballs while they have shields yeah. that they're holding up. Yeah. Um, the red and yellow. Yes. I yes. guess that represents the communist and the uh, the nationalist during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. We've got the uh, the First Communion being, you know, interrupted and being violently broken apart. We've got an aunt of his that looks like she molested him as a child. Mm-hmm. That's actually a, a memory that comes to the surface and right. not something that's recreated. We begin to wonder what's real, what's being staged, what's his own memories that are coming to the surface, what are the things that actually hold power for him. And again, just like just like in the other film, we have this this hidden and suppressed past that is being dredged up and being brought to the surface and mm-hmm. Again, another film that I found absolutely fascinating. Uh, there's a moment where he's out in the garden because he's he's taken to the garden each day so that he can practice signing his name. And uh, suddenly, knights, jousting knights, come out of nowhere and begin to attack him. So again, we get these these moments of fantasy that interrupt his recovery as well. Uh, again, I found this absolutely striking and beautifully performed really chilling in the callousness of the people in his life and the people that go along with the the plan, whether it's the priest who's putting on the, the show of the First Communion yeah. or the the doctors, the, the board members uh, of the company that he runs, everyone who's willing to just kind of play along in order to get something out of this man who's been injured. Right. 
With I think the film uh, actually plays on three different levels. We do have the uh, the recreations that the family is doing, and yes. that's I, I think for the most part that's pretty obvious which ones yeah. they are they are actually planning and uh, recreating for him. And then the fantasy sections, if you remember, they all take place in the garden. Mm, Almost yeah. all of, everything that happens to him in the garden could be considered a fantasy sequence because you actually see him actually uh, going to different places in his life but they always wind he always winds up back in the garden yeah and then you've got like the the outside world which looks like about the business you know the actual yeah. what's happening in real life and that's the the outside world but each each of those each of those things i think are pretty delineated as far as you know i was thinking of this as probably the best Boonwell film that Boonwell never made because <laughs> it, 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 there is so much here that reminds me of the work of Boonwell. yeah yeah you know? Yeah, I, again, I really loved this one. It was really fascinating. We've got Jose Luis Lopez Vasquez back, who was in Peppermint Frappe. Exactly. Um, he's yeah. outstanding. Almost it's, like a Chauncey Gardner in a way. way he, yeah. he he doesn't show much emotion, but, yeah. but it's in it's all in his eyes, or maybe a little twitch of his eyebrow, or, or his, his, like, uh, in between his eyes, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I do, I also think it's really telling that even characters that we think are going to be on his side or who are going to be sympathetic to him, who might be helpful for him, they end up being just as as callous as the others. I think about his daughter in the scene. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we think that she is maybe more caring than some of the others. Yeah. And there's a scene where he's practicing signing his name and she becomes just as hard and just as stern as everyone else in the family. And I think it speaks really honestly about uh, the greed of human nature, as well as the the repression that was going on in Spain at the time, yeah. too. Now, this is probably the most overtly anti-Franco film or allegory that, that, that I've seen of his. Uh, so it was obvious anyone who was watching this would know exactly what's going on. I, I think in the character of Antonio, what we're seeing is the collective consciousness or the collective memory of a country that's forgotten. You know, I think the film was made in 70, of course, uh, so yeah. that's thir- th- more than 30 years since the Civil War. And so it's almost like the country has forgotten the trauma that the country went through at that time. And now they're all uh, under this re- regime with this practically no kind of civil freedom for the, yeah. for the people. And yeah. so that it's almost like the character of Antonio just kind of represents that lack of freedom or inability to control his own life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a good, that's a good read on it. Mm-hmm. I also yeah. noticed that the film was dedicated to Geraldine Chaplin, mm-hmm. who was at the time, they were a, a partnership, Sara and her, but mm-hmm. she was only in one small scene. Did you catch her? Yeah. She had a yeah. very brief moment. During that came that first communion yeah. scene. Yeah. yeah. In the church. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's off making another film. I'm not sure at the time, but because after that she returns to him, and I think she's almost almost all of his films in the '70s. After that, yeah, I I love this one. Uh, I think this one's again outstanding. It feels like a natural progression from Honeycomb, mm-hmm. and I think we get even even more of that progression as we move on to the next film as well. Yeah, which is uh, my favorite of the three. If we're going, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. 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 So we're moving on now to Anna and the Wolves, which is the final film that we'll talk about today. This one's a pretty brutal one. I think this is maybe the the most difficult of the the films uh, that we watched uh, for this episode. 
I also think it's it's the best of the three, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. I hesitate to to say that because I do actually really like all three of them pretty right. close. I think they all really work for me pretty well, but I do think that this one is uh, such a strong, really haunting, haunting work. Uh, do you want to dig into the plot a little bit? Yeah. Again, we have this isolated villa out in the middle of nowhere in Spain. First person we meet is Anna herself, played by Geraldine Chaplin, who has uh, become a governess to these three children in this house. Uh, we don't know where she's from, but I think along the way, do we ever know that she's from America? I mean, she shows her passport, but uh, one time she actually breaks out speaking English. And, oh, and to make another point about this, this is, I think, his first, Sara's first film that had onset sound. Almost mm-hmm. all of his films before this in the 70s, in the 60s up to 1970, uh, used post-production sound or dialogue. Yeah. And this was the one recorded uh, actually on site while it was filmed. And we get to hear Geraldine Chaplin's real voice speaking perfect Spanish, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she, she's just so fluent. And then what we, did, what we meet when, we, when she arrives at the house as this governess of these tr- three children, she finds three more children. Let's look at, put it that way. Uh, they are the sons of the matriarch of the house. We've got uh, Fernando and we've got uh, Jose and we have Juan. You'll remember Fernando because he plays, if you've seen Spirit of the, Be- of the Beehive, he plays the mm-hmm. father in that film, which was filmed in the same year as Anna and the Wolves. You know, mm-hmm. and then we also have Jose, who was who was in the hunt. Yeah, six years before La Casa, and then we have a, a new a new uh, actor. I'm not familiar with his work, but the three the three brothers are all each have their own uh, personality traits. You know, Fernando is the the quieter one, the one that's most loved by the mother, P- perhaps the older one. I, I I assume, but he just wants he wants his life is to leave a, the life of an ascetic, uh, just as as a hermit. To, to get away from the physical and just become a hermit and live in a cave. And we've got Juan, who is sex-starved. He's married. He's the father of the three children. But but that doesn't stop him from want, wanting to uh, to get sex outside his marriage. And then we have Jose, who was, who, who was power-mad, you know. Even, yeah. it, not in the way he treats his family, but the way he, he actually tells Anna, you know, if you have any trouble, come to me. I'm the one in charge, even though it's his brother's children that, that she's supposed to be taking care of. Yeah, and then we have the matriarch of the family. She has her own little problems, and and she gives some of uh, some of the uh, comic relief that this film needs, you know. Yeah. And so at moments, I'm not sure if that that was that was Sora's uh, intention, but she does kind of relieve some of the drama that creates between uh, Anna and the the three brothers, who I suppose are the the title characters as the wolves. You know, how, how would you interpret that, Josh? That yeah, they are I, the wolves. Yeah. I think they are definitely the wolves. I think that they are, they're the wolves that are hunting her, right? Yeah, um, yeah. They're the Each ones of them wants her. her, yeah, yeah. Each of them has their something. own reasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we have the three different uh, sections or the three different segments of Francoist society mm-hmm. that are uh, represented. We have the family with Juan. We have religion and we have the militarism and the military, yeah. and we have all of those those different pieces in the way that they essentially want to destroy the individual, yeah, in in different ways. In um, my notes, I call it I call them church, body, and state. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah. the three represent. Yeah, yeah, 
And so I, I think it's, to me, the most overtly symbolic of the of the three films, just in the fact that the characters really do have these stand-ins. They do stand in for the different aspects of society under Franco. And uh, we have that moment where Fernando is walking to the cave and he looks out and has a vision of the household. And uh, we see them all in these highly symbolic manners, whether it's yeah. the mother being carried by the servants and Juan grabbing at Anna and Jose riding in full on, military yes, gear, yeah. <laughs> riding on the horse, yeah. and uh, Lucci with her children. So again, we have this this very each character is is becomes a representation. And at that point, Fernando's really trying to escape. He's trying to use religion as an escape and, and wanting to actually not participate in in the system. He's wanting to abandon that in, until he, he can't deny his impulses anymore. Well, that's the thing about this character, especially I find most fascinating of the three, is that he is the one that really doesn't come out and tell Anna what he wants. The other two, yeah. it's obvious what they need yeah. or what, what they're wanting. And Fernando, you don't find out till you know, very close to the end exactly yeah. what his needs are. And it's almost like, well, there it goes. I, I thought maybe they'd have one of the brothers wouldn't wouldn't be so uh, as crazy as the other. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had thought that because he he had he had these these leanings that seemed benevolent, you know, but he was using his asceticism as a as a cover, as yeah. a way to hide from his own dysfunction, his own drives and compulsions. And and I I think that to me is is really fascinating as well. But I think as he represents the church, he's also separating himself from the people. You yeah. know, it's like yeah. his ideals as if he's if he represents a church is not to actually help people, but to rise above it. And his whole point was to, as she asked him, are you looking for spirituality? He says, no, I'm looking for ecstasy. Yeah. You know, something yeah. beyond, you know, just, just reaching some kind of spiritual goal, you know? Yeah. But, uh, well, and you know, we, we have these, these moments throughout where Anna begins to sense that things aren't right. Right. Mm-hmm. We have the, the pornographic letters that she is being sent from uh, a stalker that, mm. as Jose calls it, you know, somebody mm. who's sending letters from all reaches of the world and then eventually tells them that it's actually Jose using family stamps. Yeah. And and then we have a, a, a doll that the kids oh find goodness, yeah. that has been buried in the mud and has been... Shorn of its hair. Yeah, the yeah. hair has been cut off. Yeah. And it's it's been made filthy it's been made it's been debased uh, yeah. essentially and then anna yeah. says yeah we can we can clean it don't worry yeah and, and yeah. then uh jose who is the one who's in control of everything well no wasn't no it's the father she confronts yeah it was one yeah, it, it was, was one yeah and, and he says no that's easily fixed tomorrow they'll forget yeah. about it it's almost yeah. like the people forget all the mud and grime yep. and the and all yeah. that people have to go through because tomorrow is another day you know <laughs> And Juan tells tells her that well, it was Fernando that did this, the yeah. the religious brother that 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 did this, and there's this again this idea that that Fernando in his attempt to to separate himself out from the people is also wants to 
remove any sense of temptation, any sense of beauty, any sense of anything that might distract him from his goal of reaching that spiritual ecstasy, right? Mm-hmm. And, but uh, why he does it to the children, I'm not that certain. I'm, I'm not understanding exactly so that part, the doll itself. Because that's why whenever Juan says, you know, Fernando did it, I was suspicious of that actually myself and say, well, did the girls do it? I mean, I'm, I really de- didn't get a satisfied answer to that yeah. particular question. Yeah. I, you know, I tend to think it is Fernando. I okay. Think that, yeah. I think that it's Fernando acting out in a way that is acceptable, that he's not going to be punished for mm-hmm. in the family. Uh, he's not, he would be punished if he does this to the girls. He'd be punished yeah. if he yeah. does this to the mother. He'd be punished if he does this to Lucci. Oh, uh, and that, that brings to mind being punished as a child for sucking his thumb. Yeah. yeah. And that's why the need the need to, to be punished for doing something yeah. that, that brings you pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think there is this this sense of that thimble is mm-hmm. just absolutely it looks like a medieval torture device. It does, yeah. And you know, it, it and and Again, there's this this growing sense of horror as Anna tries to navigate these three men, and yet she tries to gain agency too. Oh yeah, she she really she starts teasing that. them like yeah. she starts playing along with each of their each of their uh, fantasies or what they want from her because she at this point she's aware of what each of them wants. Yeah. So she plays around with them like she does with uh, Jose about taking yeah. care of his military uniforms, you know, and come in there and dressing him up and. And uh, going along with his fantasies of, of about being a great military leader. Yeah, yeah. And she, you know, she is able to kind of hold her own with them mm-hmm. for a long time. She's trying to assert her individuality. She's trying to to not give in to any of them. I was really struck by just how she, when Juan gives her, hand delivers one of his pornographic oh, yes. letters... Yeah. thinking that he does that she doesn't know it's him yeah and she's then like, her, her passive aggression comes out at that point well and she's like why don't you read it to me you know yeah <laughs> well, go yeah. ahead and read it read it no i don't have anything i'm not worried about anybody reading anything you know yeah. Yeah. there's nothing private that i'm worried about and just how uncomfortable that makes him yeah. and i just i found that again those those little ways that she tries to steal back a little bit of power from these men yeah. who are trying to dominate her. Oh, and the uh, night that he makes uh, advances towards her, like in the restroom, or is it in her in her in her, her restroom? Yeah, in her, and, yeah, yeah. And and she kind of plays along with him. And she says, "Yeah, are you going to leave Lucci?" And she, he says, "Yeah, I will leave Lucci." And so she hollers, she opens the door and screams, "Hey, Lucci, come here!" You know. Yeah, exactly. It's like she, she at that point, I think she has taken control of that situation. Mm-hmm. But then I think with Fernando, I think she actually. Yeah, something about her. She wants this, this, uh, this spirituality, and yeah. so she, she starts out playing with him. But I think at, at a certain point that that she's as close to achieving or getting as close to him as any of the two brothers. Yeah. At the point, at the point when they're in the cave. Yeah, well, and I think that she she also sees him as an ally because he's the one yeah. brother that doesn't seem to want anything from her. Right. Oh yeah. Until she discovers what he wants from her and And then we have that ending where everybody gets what they want you know yeah yeah and it's and it to me is such a 
I mean, it it is a, it's horrific. It is frightening. It's shocking, but it also feels like it's the only way this this story can end. Yeah, because just just to have Anna walk away like she walked in with her with her suitcase. Yeah. Uh, as as someone that we didn't know, and then we learned to know, you know, during the time she's there, just having yeah. her walk away would seem like it'd be a kind of film that you would expect, you know. Like say Robert Altman's Three Women, where the women yeah. just you know something horrific happens, but then the women are all t- still together, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think that part of what had to happen in this story is we had to see the consequences of the individual within fascist Spain, right? Yeah. I mean, the oh yeah, he couldn't let them off easy. No, he could. He couldn't somehow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah it's awful and it's it's horrific and i understand why again i think i believe this one was also was also suppressed for a time okay yeah yeah if i remember some of my my readings on it well the the difference in time between him filming the garden of delights and this film was three years which is the longest in his whole career that he did not make a film yeah because of the reaction to garden of delights i suppose But when he came back after this, I, uh, he, he was then able to, to, to have a steady career, like one, one or film every year or two. Yeah, it, it was entered into Cannes, it, you know, so it, it did have some international mm-hmm. success. He also, you know, something that's fascinating to me is that it, he did follow it up with a, uh, in 79, a, a comedy film that is a sort of sequel. I know. Uh, I saw that on your notes. I says, no way. Because there's yeah. no way this man could get a sequel. Yes. And yes. then I went to the Wikipedia page and read it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's a it's a fascinating thing. I'm, I'm trying to track it down, but it's it, yeah. I don't think it's available. It's a film called Mama Turns 100. Yeah. And it's about a woman named Anna who returns to a country house in Spain where she worked as a nanny many years earlier for the 100th birthday of the family matriarch. And so again, we have three brothers and three girls. Again, it, it, it plays with the idea of the symbolism within yeah. all of this. So I'm going to be very curious to check that out when I have a chance. Uh, yeah, I'll all. have to somehow track it down myself. Yeah, yeah, because I think it's it'll be fascinating. It was nominated for an Oscar. Oh, wow. Uh, it was nominated it for... It was one of the shortlist? Uh, it was nominated for uh, Best Foreign Language Film uh, for okay. the 52nd Academy Awards. So, yeah, uh, I'm I'm going to be very curious to see how it holds up or, or what it is. So, yeah. But, you know, Anna and the Wolves to me is, is, again, it's the strongest of these three films that we've talked about today. It's, to me, the the most horrific of the three. It is all of these films to me. They again, they flirt with horror. Mm-hmm. There is something just so chilling about these films made under a fascist regime. And again, as I was talking with my wife, I said, you know, th- there's something so different about you know a film that is made by a you know w- when you have like the the films made in France under Nazi occupation, when you have these invaders who are coming into your home. As my wife put it, uh, it's almost like it's an act of resistance to make a film. There's something triumphant in that. But, you know, when you're making a film and it's your own country that has descended into fascism, there's something almost fatalistic and almost more defeatist and more 
disturbing, I think, uh, to the psyche uh, when you're when you're looking at films that come from that. And to me, this is there's a an underlying pessimism and almost hopelessness in these films. And I don't think that's a bad thing by any no. means. I think it's it, it's reflective of what it must feel like when your country has has really descended into that. Well, it, it's kind of we can find a, a present day equivalent in the career of Jafar Banahi. Yeah, you yeah. Know, about him unable to make films within his own country because of yeah. uh, the repression of, of the government. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. Yeah. So I, you know, I highly recommend these. Do you think out of the the six that we've seen so far, do you expect any of these to make their way onto physical disc? It's hard to say. I, I would yeah. think the hunt would probably be the most likely, but I, I, I really it, these days it's it's hard to know. That's I would true. hope that maybe those first three we spoke of could could be paired in a little box set, yeah. like they're doing these days with like Marguerite Dura and My Zetterling. You know, so yeah. those, those those kind of boxes where there's not a lot of supplements, and they they own the films, and there's there's really uh, not. Not that much effort, you know, but as we call it, low hanging fruit. Yeah. You know, any most of expense has already been paid up front. You know. Yeah. No, that's a great that's a great point because I think that it yeah. would be, I think you could get a couple of uh, box sets like that out of his yeah. work here. Yeah. Well, that that's what we missed with the eclipse set. This, these yeah. would have been perfect to put yeah. these in three and four film sets. You know. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I can imagine a uh, set of Carlos Saura's, you know, house films, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. uh, we got to think of a name like Isolation, Isolation, Films of Isolation. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Or a- Allegories, you know. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Because I, I used to love the name to come up with these, with these series, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think we've got a few more... Uh, sets of films to talk about i think we've got two more sets of uh, films coming up next we'll have cousin uh, angelica elisa vida mia and los ojos vendados mm-hmm. and then we'll close things out with de prisa de prisa and sweet hours so mm-hmm. uh, we'll go right up to the 80s with these yeah that's great if we're going to hit all of the ones that are uh, just streaming so yeah, that, yeah yeah that's a good schedule there yeah it's quite a quite a collection of uh of sour films that we'll be yeah. doing over mm-hmm. the the next few months um as we alternate between uh the sour films and the isha honda films so mm-hmm. yeah oh you're gonna have That's a lot fun. of the honda films <laughs> yeah. yes i know i know yeah, yeah. i've got uh I've got so quite i hope celeste is prepared for that exactly exactly yeah. <laughs> uh, i think i spoke to you about this one of this especially I, I, I i'm i'm looking forward to hearing you talk about and it's Mantango. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think you can have fun with that. That's in, from 63. So that's right after, what was the last time you finished with, oh, no, you're still in the, in the 50s. You still had Mysterians and We and, did. We, we and did Varen. Right Mysterians yeah. and Varen, the Unbelievable. So yeah, those, next, yeah. Our next set will be Atragon, Tango, and Dogura. Okay, so, so it will be in the next one. one. Yeah. 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 I think you'll like that one. Oh, that's good. I'm excited for that one. Yeah. It's like a uh, LP Lovecraft story. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> uh, Michael, thank you again so much. This was uh, this was great to dig into these ones. If we skirted around spoilers, um, it's because there are some 
shocking, disturbing things that happen in these films, and we don't want to give too much of that away, especially since these are films that, you know, unlike the Ishiro Honda films, where you pretty much know how those films are going to end, uh, these are films that uh, you aren't completely sure where they're going, and uh, uh, part of the the experience of the film is yeah. uh, arriving there. And uh, again, these are, these are films that people don't watch as much as yeah. they probably should. So yeah. hopefully this con- these conversations will spur you on to check them out. Right. Yeah. I'm glad we took this tech because I didn't want, I don't want to, to, to over, you know, to spoil them as much as I, I would like to discuss the endings, but I think we, we give people enough uh, information for them to want to seek them out. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, Michael, once again, thank you for joining me. And uh, I want to thank, again, all of our Patreons for supporting the show. And uh, thanks to everyone over at Criterion Cast for uh, being a home for the show. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Michael, where can people find you online? I am at Letterboxd under Michael Hutchins. And then I'm also on several uh, Facebook groups, including the Criterion Channel Club and uh, Criterion Now. So, Look me out there. I'm, I'm posting on there. Oh, and also, I, I think I failed to mention this, but I've uh, I've lately uh, really been doing a lot of uh, of uh, posting on the Criterion Completion page, yeah. Which, which was uh, which is uh, Keith's Enright's return to the internet. It's been going on for about a year now. I just realized how long it's been. Yeah. But, yeah, but 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 he's he now has a presence on Facebook and. And it's, it's led me back into the whole world of Janice films. I've been doing so much research lately, but for, for, for no other means than just, just for the fascination of the company. You know, it has such a rich, deep history that I, I am just going way back, you know, to, to find out exactly what, what the company uh, was doing, you know, for, for, for the 40 years, well, 30 years before Criterion, you know. Yeah. And let me tell you, they was doing a lot. So <laughs> well, I, you know, I've seen some of your lists uh, that uh, you're you're talking about some of the the TV licensing that they were doing, yeah. some of the VHS licensing they were doing. I mean, it's it's pretty impressive the yeah. the research that you're turning up. Yeah, well, it, it involves a lot of internet searches, you know, like archive.org, but also yeah. seeking out catalogs. The thing about catalogs or any kind of printed material is this it's ephemera that that most people just kind of toss in the trash you know mm. uh, suppose the people that they mail these out to with you know these uh yeah like uh colleges and you know people yeah. who rent films that they just kind of trash them when they get the next one and so it's been kind of difficult finding these but I've, I've been able to find catalogs from the 60s 70s and 80s wow about about six of them and so you, you can really see the evolution of them adding films losing films you know and uh, but I just I haven't been able to get one from the 90s yet. I, I okay. did. I was able to be able to uh, track a little of their history of the 90s because that's when they started leasing their films out uh, for video cassette beyond yeah. what they was doing with Criterion on Laserdisc. In fact, I was it was I was I don't know why I never thought about why would Janice be sitting on these films? You know, why would they uh, just want them on Laserdisc? It just never occurred to me yeah. that this whole wealth of films is right there for them to 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 uh to license out to to uh, video cassette yeah retailers yeah so yeah that was That's great so i was able to f- find hundreds of films that they actually released uh on video cassette and that list is on my letterbox page too that's fantastic uh yeah so definitely check out uh, michael's letterboxd account 
if you want to dig into some of the really obscure history of the Criterion Collection and uh, Janus Films, because I think there's some uh, really interesting things there. Just as I was digging it, digging around some of those titles, uh, there are some really neat uh, films there that uh, you just wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Michael. This has been such a lovely conversation. I'm going to really look forward to talking with you again in a couple months to dig into some more Saura. Same here. Thank this you, Josh. Thank you. Take care. And you too. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, CinemaCocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at criterioncast.com and support the work of Criterion Cast at patreon.com slash criterioncast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener supported. So please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash joshhornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show. And for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss on a special Patreon-only bonus episode. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.